Episode of Roxy Fever. I am your host, Jackson McDonald, and with me for the first time is nobody. Uh, we have discussed, uh, we being Vias, Elliot, and I, over the past couple weeks, a lot of sort of different ideas that we want to try out with regards to the main feed of the podcast. And an idea that I had was to record a solo episode where I basically discuss the state of the Canucks from sort of a holistic perspective. And what I mean by that is that oftentimes people in the hockey media have a tendency to kind of reject meta-narratives and look at teams through very, very narrow lenses in terms of looking at one transaction, let's say a trade, and going, well, this is what they gave up, this is what they got back, and so it's a success or a failure. And they don't necessarily really talk that much about how these moves affect one another, or how For example, the JT Miller trade, despite being a pretty obviously a success from the standpoint of, hey, what they give up, what they get back, and how it worked out for them, they don't really look at how a move like that might affect something like cap space or their ability to re sign other players or their ability to. Or, or even just something like what it signals about their window. This is a guy who's under contract for four more years, and so they are now incentivized to get the most out of these four years, even if that isn't necessarily the best course of action from a hockey perspective, from an asset management perspective. So what I wanted to do here, I guess, is to... Top to bottom, take a look at the Canucks from a few different aspects and basically discuss why I am not particularly optimistic about their chances of really making any serious noise in the Western Conference in the near future. I've got a 12-pack of White Claws here with me to uh, to help out. And I've got the cap-friendly page, the Elite Prospects in the System page, and some old rosters in front of me here. And I basically, my plan here is just to go through the team element, element by element and explain why I think... The Canucks essentially have no real hope of being a good team while Jim Benning is in charge. The reason why I've chosen to do this on the podcast is, well, A, we've done a pretty good job of having an episode out every week. 
and I want to keep the streak going. And B, why the Canucks are fucked is not exactly an easy thing to pitch to Daily Hive or The Athletic or any kind of publication that might be interested in publishing my thoughts. It's really um, a little too blunt for most uh, platforms that exist right now. The other reason is that I have ADHD and it's become increasingly difficult to actually sit down and write out my thoughts. It's a lot easier to just speak them into a microphone and then edit them into some kind of coherent uh, sequence where one thought follows another, which uh, is probably something I'm going to have to do a lot of because I have a tendency to forget my train of thought, etc., etc. But I'm going to do the best I can. So before I get into the individual elements here, I wanted to first address the question of what is a good team? Because I think something that's going to be valuable about this episode is it's going to touch on a lot of different arguments that I'm seeing in the media right now about the Canucks. But if I don't explain the sort of guiding principle behind the argument I'm about to make, then it really doesn't do anyone any good. Because something I see a lot of, if you kind of hound somebody for their real opinion for long enough, is that Basically, they just want to have fun and watch their hockey team on a Saturday night and feel like they have a chance to win. And I I totally get that, and I respect it. It is the normal relationship to have to an entertainment product, and specifically a sports team. Because as a fan, you, as a consumer of the product, you really do not have much of an effect on what happens. You don't even really have a way to collectively, as a group of fans, impose your will on the team because it's just so completely unaccountable to the fans, especially in a market like this where essentially the team has been bad for half a decade and attendance is mostly sturdy. With the exception of, you know, in really lean years and really bad years, it might go down 5 or 10%. But that's that's nothing in comparison to what towns that are not one-sport towns have to deal with with their sports teams. So while, uh, the, while the whole approach of, look, I just want my team to be good enough that I can hope and pray that they'll win, win whenever I turn the game on, is a totally understandable philosophy to, to have. It's not really what people are arguing about. At least in my opinion. I think that mostly when you see people arguing online or you see people writing columns or they're on the radio talking about the state of the team, they're talking about building a contender. And this can mean a few different things. And so I want to just lay out what it means to me specifically. I think it's fairly easy to build the sort of Ben Sagan era Dallas Stars, for example, where you kind of have a team that, yeah, they've got some pieces and some elite players, and I guess if everything shakes right for them, 
Maybe they can go on a run, surprise some people, and if they get lucky, maybe that team can win a Stanley Cup in a year where something weird happens to one of the more established teams in the Western Conference. And another team has a player who gets hurt, and they get some favorable matchups in uh, the first few rounds of the playoffs, and then just, you know, their goalie gets hot at the right time or whatever. It's a lot harder to build the kind of team that you can reasonably say deserves to win a Stanley Cup. And the problem with this is obviously that a lot of the time, teams that deserve to win a Stanley Cup don't. Um, It's happened. Canucks fans are very familiar with this. The 2011 team, and even iterations adjacent to it, like in 2010, 2009, even 2012, that the core of that team probably deserved to win a Stanley Cup based on how good it was, but they didn't. Nevertheless, it seems to me that the best way to build a contender is to build a team that is, at least in theory, capable of winning a Stanley Cup for as long of a period of time as possible, usually something like six, seven, maybe eight years. Basically, you try to build a dynasty, and even though most teams that try to build a dynasty fail, you hope that you've done a good enough job that at some point over your extended window, you are the best team in the league enough times that you win a Stanley Cup. And there's historical precedence for this. Um, obviously, you can point to the kind of like Blackhawks as a, as a dynasty. You can point to the Red Wings in the 90s and early 2000s. But even teams that had a little bit less success, like say, I don't know, the Colorado Avalanche team that gave the West, Ex- West Coast Express so much trouble, or the uh, more recent Washington Capitals team that won the cup in, I believe, 2018. I'm bad at remembering years. These are teams that were basically either... They they were good over a long period of time and kind of were able to win cups or come close through different iterations of their team. So if you want to use the Colorado Avalanche example, they won a cup in the mid-90s and then they won a cup in 2001. Even the Washington Capitals, when they finally won their Stanley Cup, it was like the third iteration of a Washington Capitals team that seemed capable of winning the Stanley Cup. So I guess the point that I'm getting at here is that really, with a few notable exceptions, you really can't just push all your chips in on one year. Because winning the Stanley Cup is too hard and too too dictated by randomness to effectively actually have all of those parts come together right at the right time under the right circumstances and win. It just doesn't work. So the next question that follows that is obviously, okay, so if that's what our definition of a good team is, how do you do that? I would say, once again, there's a historical precedent for the best way of doing that being to kind of have a a core. And when I say a core, I mean a really, really small core, maybe like five players tops of elite talent. 
and then a very, very fluid middle and bottom tier of players that can effectively be transitioned in and out when the time is right, and then a healthy prospect and development system. And once again, you can look at history to confirm this. If we want to look at that Blackhawks team again, all three times that they won the Stanley Cup in that little half a decade period there, they had a team with a few core pieces, Kane, Taves, Duncan Keith, can maybe add Patrick Sharp and Seabrook to that, but but that's about it. And then they had all these support pieces that were forced out because of cap constraints or whatever else, and that supporting cast changed each time. Dustin Bufflin was an elite player that they couldn't hold on to because they didn't have the room or the money for him. And so that was a contract that had to be jettisoned. But luckily, the system that was in place and the front office that was in place was capable of weathering that storm, of replacing that player from within so that they were able to win cups again in 2013 and 2015. So with that out of the way, what I want to do here is I want to look at the Canucks from top to bottom and explain why they're not set up to do this. Before I get into that, though, I do just want to say that just because they're not set up to do this doesn't mean that they can't get lucky and basically uh, go on a run, maybe even a sustained run. Hell, maybe even win the Stanley Cup. Hockey is very random. And basically anything can happen. But at the same time, teams like the 2006 Carolina Hurricanes are a lot more rare than teams like the 2018 Washington Capitals or the 2019 St. Louis Blues even, who who were really good over a really long period of time and then just finally had the opportunity to punch their ticket. So what I'm laying out here is not a case that they can't get lucky and have some short-term success, but more that for a number of different reasons, they are not set up to have success over a long enough period of time to kind of, obviously, I don't want to say guarantee a Stanley Cup because that's just not a thing that you can do, but to basically create the conditions and circumstances where it will be disappointing if they don't win a Stanley Cup. So the first place to look at here is the cap situation. And this allows us to look at the current roster too, so I'll touch on that. But I have the cap-friendly page for the Canucks opened up here. And I'm just going to go through it piece by piece so that the you listeners here have sort of a reference point for what I'm about to talk about. So as I alluded to earlier, I think there's basically three elements here that a team has to have to see long-term success. A set of elite players that they can build around, a malleable set of support pieces that are good, obviously, preferably. You have some good players in there, even if you eventually have to get rid of them. And then 
a healthy prospect development system, both drafting good talent and then developing it to hit its ceiling so that you can eventually replace that malleable set of support pieces. Now, the good news here, looking at the cap-friendly page, is that the Canucks have the first thing more or less figured out. I think the if you identify the the set of core pieces as Quinn Hughes, Elias Patterson, Bo Horvat, and then maybe Brock Besser, those are good pieces to build around. You've got two centers uh, that are both extremely capable of holding down top six jobs. You've got a potential franchise defenseman, and you've got a good scoring winger who, you know, if he can stay healthy, is pretty much a lock to be a, a first-line winger. So that's good. The problem here, the obvious problem, is that none of them are locked up long-term. So just looking at the cap-friendly page here, the Canucks only have seven players locked up for 2021-2022. Those seven players are Louis Erickson, (laughs) Brock Besser, Bo Horvat, JT Miller, Antoine Roussel, Jay Beagle, and Tyler Myers. They also have Michael Furland locked up until 2022-23, but he's on LTIR right now, so it's unclear how he factors into this long-term. The good news is that a lot of their best players are young and they have some degree of cost control over them over the next stretch of years. But the problem is that we've seen an increasing trend here among young players to not exactly play ball the way that clubs have expected players to over the course of the cap era. Increasingly, players are starting to realize that their best years are when they are under team control. And so they aren't particularly interested in signing long-term deals, and they definitely aren't interested in taking hometown discounts because they realize that their biggest chance of cashing in is to hit the open market at 26 or 27, sign an eight-year deal for multiple millions of dollars, and basically cash in that way. Uh, the even you know even Connor McDavid, who's the highest-paid player in the league, people are saying he regrets signing that contract with the Oilers because. He's now realizing that not only is he stuck on the Oilers, but he could have potentially made more money in a few years if he had just bridged. So as far as this pertains to the Canucks, they have a few really obvious holes to plug within the next couple years here. Jake Vertanen and Adam Gaudet at forward are RFAs this summer. Theoretically, depending on when the season ends, obviously coronavirus throws everything into disarray. But while Adam Gaudet does not qualify for or is not offer sheet eligible 
Jake Vertanen is, and he's already signed a second contract in the past, and he also had a very good season. So chances are he's going to get a significant raise. Troy Stetcher, another player who's an RFA, he's going to get a significant raise, or more likely will just be traded, or they'll let him walk. And then the obvious big one is Jacob Markstrom, who is a UFA this summer. And is not only due for a big raise, but does not really... The Canucks don't really have any option but to re-sign him because they have nothing else coming up to replace him. Thatcher Demko theoretically could have been ready to do this, but he didn't really get enough starts to prove himself. And the Canucks don't have somebody waiting in the wings right now to be his backup. Mikey DiPietro is a few years away. And the UFA market for goalies is questionable. There's definitely people that they could look to to bridge the gap between Markstrom potentially leaving and Demko taking over the reins as the starter. But from a business perspective, this is a tough sell because the fans here are really, they're invested in Jacob Markstrom. They like Jacob Markstrom. Markstrom had a really good season. It is very, very hard to sell to the fan base, hey, we let this guy walk and replaced him with Thomas Grice or something. I don't know if he's a UFA, but that's an example. That's a potential example you could use. So there's other holes they need to plug as well. Tanev's a UFA. Fantenberg's a UFA. Less of a big deal. Louis Domingue, their third goalie, is a UFA. These are not huge problems. But they are realities you need to deal with. So looking at a bigger picture here, zooming out, the Canucks have 14 players under contract for next season at 63, just under $63.5 million with an upper with the cap limit projected to be $84 million. So this means that, in essence, they have about 20-21-ish million dollars to fill nine roster spots. This creates an obvious problem, because it means that the average amount of money that they have to spend on those players that they have to replace, which is about, you know... Over a third of their roster, they have an average of two, 2.2-ish million dollars per player to fill in those roster spots. So even already just looking at next year, there are some potential cap issues here. And one of the things about cap issues is that that makes it hard when you're arguing with someone about this is that... You can't actually see the effect that a lack of salary cap space or a bad salary cap outlook has on a team. Because mostly, um, the way that cap space affects a team is on the moves they don't make or can't make. So, in a lot of instances, 
there are trades, transactions, whatever players on the open market that a team could have been in on if they didn't spend all their money money on, say, Tyler Myers and Louis Erickson, that they could have been on. But because of their cap constraints, that wasn't something that was able to happen. So what you'll see a lot of on Canucks Twitter is people saying, oh, well, you know, the Canucks haven't lost any major players. So what's the big deal? Cap space isn't a problem. And while that's essentially true, they haven't really, there haven't really been any cap casualties yet. The truth is we don't know if there are potential steals or players they could have been in, could have been in on that they missed out on because they didn't have the ability to get the trade done. That's just a bit of an aside. It's not the main point I want to make here, but it is something to consider. So even just next year, the Canucks have a lot of holes to plug. But where it starts to get really hairy is looking at two, three years down the road. I already alluded to the fact that they have only seven players locked up in 2021-22, and they have a grand total of three locked up in 2022-23. Now, people like to point at this as a way of kind of saying, hey, look, all this cap space stuff, it's totally overblown. There's so much money coming off the books. What are you guys worried about so much? But it's really important to look at when certain players are coming off the books and how you're supposed to replace them, which we'll get into a little bit when I look at prospects. But I did just want to address right off the bat here as well. Something that I've seen a lot of is people saying, you know, oh, well, the Canucks have Erickson and Sutter coming off the books in 2021, or sorry, in 2022, summer of 2022 for Erickson, and summer of 2021 for Brandon Sutter. So this is going to free up a ton of cap space and it's not going to be a problem. But the thing that people seem to kind of just ignore or not think about is that in 2021-22, the Canucks are going to have to re-sign Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes. And (laughs) when Brandon Sutter, when his cap hit is jettisoned by the Canucks, they're going to gain... $4.37 million. Sorry if this is a little dry, but I'm using it to illustrate a point here. Or the next summer, they're going to have to re-sign Elias Pettersson, who I think, let's say, gets $7 million, which seems really reasonable based on if you're going to bridge a a player who has been um, extremely effective, arguably their MVP, is going to hopefully be the linchpin of this team for like a decade to come. If Brock Besser was able to get 5.8 on a bridge deal, it seems reasonable to say Pedersen could get 7. And that's being conservative. So if you subtract Brandon Sutter's $4.3 million dollars, and then you have to re-sign Pedersen at, let's just say, 7.3 for to make the math easier. You did not gain $4.3 million in cap space. You lost $3 million in cap space. So this is a kind of a where I think people don't quite... They, they don't quite grasp that 
not only is there not only are there players that have to get locked up very very soon for a lot of money but they also have to worry about how they're going to fill these roster spots that are all opening up and this is where things start to get a little scary so there are some players that are going to command a lot of money and uh, within the system that obviously they're going to pay to fill those roster spots. But then there's also all these other roster spots opening up right at the period of time where the Canucks are supposed to start getting competitive. And this is something that should worry people. And the reason why it should worry people is because you do not want to fill 10 plus roster spots with free agents because time and time again, what we've seen is that free agents always cost more money than they're worth. And sometimes you can justify making a big splash on a free agent or two. Obviously you have to fill roster spots. So there's not much you can do when, you know, you have a hole on your, left side defense and you need a number four, number five guy or whatever. And so you go out and you give a guy a few million dollars to plug that hole. You got to do it. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Hopefully you don't overspend on term and you can reassess your situation in a couple of years. What you don't want is to end up in a situation like the one the Canucks are in right now where they have precisely one defenseman signed for the 2021-22 season and it's Tyler Myers who is old and already not good. Um he was good he was fairly good this year but ultimately not a guy you would want to bet on being a 6 million dollar defenseman over the course of the next 4 years on his contract. So I because of my ADHD, I'm not particularly good at segueing from one point to another, and I'm also very, very bad at remembering whether or not I've made every point <laughs> that I want to make. But hopefully, by looking at the cap situation here, you have a general idea of where the problems are. There are a lot of holes to fill. There is a lot of money to that needs to be allocated to a few core players here. And what we're going to approach now, what we're going to broach now in the second portion of the episode here is that the Canucks don't have anyone to naturally plug these holes that are going to come up in the next few years. So one thing that's been a recurring talking point over the last little while, especially with the Canucks letting go of Judd Brackett now officially, is how much healthier the Canucks amateur department is now, how much better the scouting is, how much better the drafting is. And um, this is a reasonable observation. The Canucks were very, very bad at this for a very, very long time. And they've actually produced some NHLers out of their more recent drafts. And in a couple of cases... Some really good NHLers. Some who may even have the potential to be elite NHLers. So I don't want to give the wrong impression here. I do think that the Canucks have taken a step forward with regards to their amateur department. 
where I perhaps differ from public opinion, or average public opinion anyways, is with regards to the health of their system at the current moment, which I feel like people have basically completely ignored this year because the whole, there's that old adage about how teams, the amount of attention that fans and media pay to their prospects is always inverse to the quality of the product on the ice. So when a team is bad, people pay a lot of attention to prospects. When a team is good, they don't pay attention at all. Because the Canucks were competitive this year, there wasn't nearly as much emphasis being placed on whether the prospect system was any good, whether they had any good prospects coming up, coming down the pipeline. Because why focus on the future when you have something tangible in the here and now to focus on? And I think that this provided a... The, the fact that the Canucks were able to take a step forward this year provided a fairly useful cover for the team's management to kind of hide what dire uh, circumstances they find themselves in with regards to their prospect system, um, specifically on defense. So for the sake of fairness here, I will say that at forward, the Canucks look not so bad. They've got a couple of sort of who-knows prospects at forward, like Carson Folkt, uh Mark Michaelis, Cole Lind, Lucas Yashik, Ethan Kepin, even um, someone like Petrus Palmu who, or Jonah Gadjevich, who are like, hey, who knows? Out of that group, maybe you get an NHL or, or two. I'm skeptical that you get an impact NHLer, but maybe you get somebody who could plug one of those holes. Um, Zach McEwen would be another good example. There are guys here who theoretically could take over roster spots as they free up. There's also, obviously, Vasily Podkolzin, who looks like a very good prospect. Um, probably a good bet to replace Jake Vertanen if the team does indeed decide to move on from Jake Vertanen, which I'm not so sure about. And we'll get to in the third part of, of this episode where I talk about their kind of history and what it can tell us about their future. But basically, at forward, it seems like they're more or less in a position to weather the storm over the next few years and not take too much of a step back year to year as they have to get rid of players and find replacements. Wingers are also far and away the easiest position to replace. So it's a lot easier to kind of plug a hole in your top six right wing or left wing than it is to try to plug a hole in your top four defense through free agency or trade. Um, these guys are generally easier to acquire for cheap. So I'm not too, too worried about the prospect of, you know, losing Tyler Toffoli this summer or losing Tanner Pearson within the next couple of years. That's not something I'm too concerned about. Where I do start to worry is on defense. And, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm not an expert on prospects by any means, but I am friends and acquaintances with some people who are. 
And let's just say that overall, the opinion in the scouting industry on the Canucks prospects, um, their future at D, it's not good, folks. Um, <laughs> they've got some. They've got some maybes here. Jet Wu is a maybe. Uh, Oli Olevi at this point, despite his pedigree, is basically a maybe. Brogan Rafferty had an excellent season at the AHL level, but he is a little bit older. So I would say he's almost certainly going to play games in the near future. But the question is obviously whether or not he's any good. Um, then you get into guys like Jack Rathbone, who some scouts are very, very high on. And uh, I think there's a possibility that he could be quite good, but obviously it's still, you know, this isn't a, this is far from a, a home run. We're looking at a guy who, you know, hopefully can maybe develop into a decent third pairing defenseman, maybe a number four. Um, obviously things can change. Guys can always surprise you. But if we look at that sort of first tier of D prospects, there's no there's no one like Quinn Hughes was a couple years ago. There's no sure thing. There's no guy who, oh yeah, in two years, he's going to be in your top four. They don't have a player like that. Um, then you get into your second tier of Canucks D prospects here, which is guys like Nikita Trampkin, who everyone seems to be in love with for some reason. Ashton Sautner, Guillaume Brisebois. I have to say, based on the conversations I've had with people like J.D. Burke and other people at Next Gen Hockey where I've done some work in the past on prospects, and even just the what I'm able to gleam from talking to media people who are closer to NHL teams than I am, is that basically outside of Jet Wu, Ole Ulevi, if he can finally be healthy and not just explode uh, every time he's on the ice for more than 20 minutes. Um, and then Rathbone, and then maybe, maybe Brogan Rafferty. But again, you got to remember how old Brogan Rafferty is. He's going to be, I think, 25 at the start of next season. There's just no... The Canucks don't really have any real D, D prospects outside of those four guys, and even those four guys, they, if you if you want to be conservative, you may be bet on one of them making the NHL and having an impact. So that's and this is normal. This is normal for a team to not have a ton of really great D prospects when they start to round the corner towards contention again. But the problem is that they have three roster spots on D to fill for next year, presuming they want to roll with seven defensemen, and six roster spots for the following year to fill on defense, assuming they want seven defensemen, um, with the understanding that, yes, they will almost certainly, well, barring some kind of catastrophic uh, circumstance. They will re-sign Quinn Hughes, and so their defense will be built around Quinn Hughes and Tyler Myers. So this is where thing. This is where we get more into a sort of philosophical conversation about the Canucks, where things are going forward, where they're at going forward. 
And we have to start making inferences about their future. So in some ways, you might look at all the space they have to fill in the next couple years and all that cap space that's going to be freed up and look at it as a blank canvas and go, wow, hey, they're going to have all this space. The world's their oyster. They can fill all these roster spots with whoever they want. But the obvious problem here is that in two years' time, they're going to have to figure out how to replace two-thirds of their defense. And they have maybe one NHLer in the system right now. Maybe two if you really, really want to be generous. Based on the conversations I've had with media people, it seems incredibly likely that they are not going to hold on to Troy Stetcher too. So any of your projections that assume on Troy Stetcher being a long-term piece of the puzzle, um, I think, are naive. So just prepare for that reality as well. So that, I think, gives a pretty clear picture of where the issues are here in the future. They have some nice core pieces, but they don't have much else and they don't have the means within the system to replace the players that are going to be on their way out. Um, They could always re-sign guys that they already have, obviously, but the problem there is that Alex Edler is 34, Chris Tanev is 30. How much longer are you really expecting those guys to be anything resembling an NHL defenseman? I think if the plan here is to just re-sign the pieces that they already have on defense, specifically, but also to some extent at forward too, the team as it is constructed right now is a ninth place team with the potential to maybe be an 8th, 7th, or 6th place team in the conference over the next couple of years without much changing. But that's assuming that all their players that need to take a step forward take a step forward, and none of their players take a step back. And where this becomes an obvious uh, problem is that they have so many players on their defense that are over the age of 30, and it is totally foolish to assume that they can all stay at the level they're playing at right now, which is already not very good. (laughs) The Canucks defense was not good this year in terms of underlying metrics. They were, Quinn Hughes really covered for a lot of the issues that they were having on the back end this year. But the problem is that you can't play Quinn Hughes for 60 minutes a night. You can't even really play him for 30 minutes a night. So, um... At some point, somebody else has to get on the ice. And right now, the guys that they have who can get on the ice when Hughes is not on the ice are old, bad, or both. So there really doesn't seem to be a lot of opportunity for growth here. And there certainly isn't anything coming down the pipeline that we can say with any level of certainty is going to be better than what they have right now. Jet Wu could be an NHL defenseman. Am I betting on him being that much better than Chris Tanev is right now? Probably not. So um, even if they find a way to hold the line at their defense, like in terms of the quality of their defense right now, that's not good enough. They are not going to become a contender with the quality of defense that they have right now. So that brings us in 
to the final aspect I wanted to talk about, which is the team's past. And the reason why I want to talk about the team's past is because I think if you look at the facts that I've laid out in front of you here, it's become pretty clear that the only real way the Canucks can actually get better in the short term is through trades or free agency. They have to be smart with their transactions. They have to consistently be on the right end of the trades that they decide to make, and they have to be consistently smart in terms of the money that they spend on free agents. Some of you may be a bit ahead of me on this one. Um, I am not going to rehash the entirety of the Jim Benning extension episode that we just did, but I am just going to kind of give a brief overview of the first three years of the Jim Benning, John Wisebrod, Trevor Linden, RIP regime. And the reason why I want to do this is because people have sort of forgotten about this. But the goal of this Canucks team, the, the, the goal that Jim Benning and co. had when they took over the team was to turn it around in a, in a hurry and to make the playoffs, which they did in their first year with a team that was largely... Uh, assembled by Mike Gillis, but, and I mean, if you want to do the logic dork thing, you can say, actually, the uh, core was mostly assembled by Brian Burke and Dave Nonis, but you get the idea. It was a, a team that was locked up under Mike Gillis, but there were some some decent holes that were plugged by Jim Benning here too. Uh, Radom Verbata, obviously a huge success in his first year. Nick Benino was, I think, a fairly uh, successful second-line center, etc., etc. Ryan Miller solved the team's problems in goal in the short term. You could quibble with the amount of money they spent on him, whatever. But it wasn't terrible. But the reason why I want to focus specifically on this period here following the firing of Mike Gillis sort of leading into the end of the 2016 and 17 season is that I think that this is the best period to look at for trying to determine what this front office is going to do with a team that they believe is competitive because we've already seen them do things with a team that they believed was competitive. Now, obviously it's a little different because they were kind of trying to do two things at once have this team that could uh, compete for the playoffs, but then also be rebuilt into a uh, contender at some point in the future, theoretically, I guess. The evidence isn't really there in terms of what they were. It's it's hard to tell what they were really trying to do when you actually look at their transactions, but I guess that was the, the idea they were going for there. Um, but I, I saw someone say recently. I think it was maybe Sat from the Larsh cast, but it's it's a very common talking point that I see on Twitter a lot is people going, why are you bringing things up from three years ago, four years ago, etc.? That's forever ago. It's not relevant anymore. You know, go outside, like forget about it. It has nothing to do with anything anymore. The, the reason why I don't think that makes any sense <laughs> and the reason why I think people should try as hard as they possibly can to keep these years in their memory is that they are the best 
example we have for, or the best test case for predicting what this team is going to do in the future. Because we've already seen them with a team that they that is competitive, that they believe can be competitive over the short term. And we've seen what kind of players they brought in to supplement that competitive team. And you can say that, oh, well, it's not really the same because they wanted to also rebuild at the same time. But ultimately, I would ask, what gives you that impression when you look at the moves that they made? Um, because they really did not do much of anything in these first few years to rebuild at all. Um, they didn't trade Dan Hamuse. They didn't trade Radom Verbata. They didn't trade Chris Tanev. They didn't really make any trades with an eye on the future, save for one two or three day period uh, in, you know, I think 2017, might have the year wrong there, uh, where they traded Yannick Hansen and Alex Burrows. That's it. So in the entirety of this period before they kind of finally decided in the Sedins last year that, okay, we have to accept that we're not going to be competitive right away and do like a soft rebuild. They really were just singularly focused on making it back into the playoffs. And that's pretty clear when you look at the trades and the signings that they made. So I mentioned Radom Verbata and Nick Benino earlier. That was kind of the best of the Canucks' first season, but it was also very quickly undone. Nick Benino became Brandon Sutter. Radom Verbata got taken off the top line and became nothing. Um, the players that they acquired, the other players that they acquired in the Kessler trade kind of became a wash. Lucas Pisa was a big, crazy handful of nothing. And... Uh, Jared McCann was traded for Eric Goodbranson, which honestly, low-key, one of the worst trades that's been made in recent memory. Um, And an important one to keep in mind when you're thinking, hmm, how are the Canucks going to deal with the fact that they have all these roster spots to plug in the next couple of years? Well... If the past is any indication, they're going to trade Vasily Podkolzin for some defenseman who can't skate and sucks. Um, that is what history teaches us. The There's other really great examples here, too. Um, they needed to fill some holes on defense in the 2015-16 season. How did they do that? They decided to sign Matt Bartkowski and trade a fifth round pick for Philip Larson. Um, these are really important things to cite and to keep in, in your memory when you think about, hey, why do I why why is Jim Benning not a good general manager? Why why am I making this argument? Well, because we have already seen him try to be try to build a good hockey team. People forget this consistently. They say that they they try to like uh, retcon the first three years that Jim Benning was general manager of the Vancouver Canucks as an attempted rebuild. And it wasn't. There were no meaningful rebuild trades being made. Their direction was, we are going to make the playoffs. And they failed so miserably 
that they accidentally kind of rebuilt over that period of time by drafting Elias Pettersson because they finished so high up uh, in the in terms of the draft rankings and so low, or in terms of draft order and so low in the league standings. So when people say, hey, why are you so focused on, you know, three, four years ago? To that I say, because it is extremely relevant if the question is, what are the Canucks going to do now that they're competitive again? So to close things out, the Canucks have a fairly decent, well, better than decent, a a very good core of young players that should help them be competitive over the next span of six, seven years, maybe. What they don't have is meaningful support pieces beyond the kind of guys that you would already expect that are already locked down, but that aren't locked down for a long period of time, like Tyler Toffoli and J.T. Miller. They have almost nothing on defense, and they don't have much in the way of prospects coming up in the near future. And they also have limited their ability to gain more of those prospects uh, in the near future because they traded away a first-round pick in the JT Miller trade. They traded away, and a third-round pick, they traded away um, a prospect to get Tyler Toffoli. They've traded away picks um, in other transactions, I think, as well. They have already returned to that sort of era in 2016-ish where they have less picks than they normally would. And this is very bad because they already don't have the... They already have so many holes to fill and no one coming up through the system to fill them. And then, just as importantly, if you look at the front office, they don't have a history of doing a particularly good job of filling these holes in trades or in free agency. Even if I give you the JT Miller trade, which I'm not ready to do yet, (laughs) that's one transaction in the course of five years. More than five years even now. Tanner Pearson even. Another good trade if you look at it in a vacuum. But if you look at all the pieces that had to go into eventually getting Tanner Pearson, it's an obvious failure. Tanner Pearson is a better player than Eric Branson, but he's not a better player than 16 picks and Jared McCann. Um, and this is why it's important to look at all of these things in totality, have a holistic approach, not just look at, did they pay fair price for a player or did they get a good deal? You have to look at the entirety of what's coming. And I think that, or of what's come in, rather. And I think that when you do that, you'll see that the team is going to struggle to fill in these support pieces over the next few years because they don't have a lot of money to fill them in. They don't have replacements coming in through the pipeline. And they have a history of being not particularly good at valuing players on the open market and in trades. So basically, if you really think that the Canucks are are going to make the best of this competitive team that they seem to 
kind of be forming the nucleus of now. You basically have to believe that the front office has undergone some sort of significant philosophical change in the last couple of years. And to that, I would say, where is your proof? They're still overspending on players in free agency, players like Tyler Myers, players like Jay Beagle, players like, I'm sorry, Antoine Roussel, who is good when he's in the lineup, but has injury trouble and is locked up for another few years. And they still probably paid a little bit too much for if from a, in a general sense, when he was on the open market, they're throwing away first round picks on players like JT Miller, who may be worth those picks. Hell, a first and a third for a guy who had 70 points this year does not seem that obscene. But when you compare him against someone like Anthony Duclair, who would have cost nothing, it's very clear that this front office likes to go for broke on big-name players, even when they shouldn't. This process might occasionally land you a JT Miller, where you get a really good player. But more often than not, it's going to land you a Brandon Sutter or a Tyler Myers. There's also the issue of the front office getting smaller and smaller and seemingly being a lot less interested in different voices, in opposing voices. This does not seem like a particularly good way to build the kind of team that can have a long enough period of success to have a couple of cracks at a Stanley Cup and hopefully eventually win one. And if that's not your goal, then I'm not really sure what your goal is. So I'm sure there's lots of cracks in what I said, especially because I lost my train of thought about five times over the course of the recording here. But hopefully this provides a nice sort of overall outlook on the team and an explanation for why I have been mostly unmoved by the instances of success that they've had this season. I guess in closing, what I would say is that while Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson are fantastic players, special players even, you can't play them for 60 minutes a night. And for every instance of a team like the 2016 or 17 Pittsburgh Penguins, where you had two elite players basically dragging a beached whale across the finish line. Um, You have a team like the Islanders with John Tavares, who essentially rest on their laurels saying, hey, we have this elite player, so we don't really have to try. And the Canucks are built a lot more like the latter, both in terms of their actual roster construction and the sort of philosophical approach that they've taken to building the team over the past five, six years. So if you just want to tune out and watch uh, big men skate fast, 
and just have a good time, nobody's going to fault you for that. But that's not an argument for the quality of the team, and it's not an argument for why they're set up to succeed over the long term. So if you're in a discussion with someone who's saying, man, I'm really worried about all these things, and your response is to go, well, don't think about it and just have fun, you're having two different conversations. And on that note, I will say goodbye. Thanks for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at McDonald. Follow the other boys on the pod at Saran and at Moose Kayak. And um, let me know what you thought of this one. I'm worried it was a little dry, but it was all stuff I wanted to get out there. So I hope you enjoyed it. And if you didn't, I guess you can direct your hate mail at me this week. Bye.